The first lesson comes from Job 31, 24 to 28. If, my, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, the moon moving in splendor, and my heart had, has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. The word of the Lord. The psalm for today is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament lesson for today is or comes from Philippians 3, 4 through 11. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning is from Mark 
chapter 10, verses 17 through 52. As we are reading whole chapters of the gospel for the remainder of, uh, of Lent, we're going to briefly set aside the church's custom of standing for the reading of the gospel. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. As he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus he's talking about. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. Not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter then began to say to him, uh, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the twelve again he began to tell them what was about to happen to them saying see we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with, with, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. 
but it is for those, but it is for those for whom it has already been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant towards James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that there are those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles who lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of, T of, Tim of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This passage in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It contains a, a story and, and even a phrase that's probably familiar to most Christians and has kind of entered the, the cultural lexicon enough to the point that it's even a phrase that a lot of non-Christians will know. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This story of the rich young ruler is found in all three synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because the story is so prevalent, it's found in, in three out of the four Gospels, a lot of people will, will talk about it. You'll hear it mentioned a lot. And so it's possible to hear a lot of kind of half-truths about what Jesus is saying here. So let's get into it. Let me pray for us as we open God's Word together. God, we ask you to be present with us. We ask you to use your Word to guide our paths, to illuminate our steps through this world, and to constantly point us back to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this thing with the rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus, and he starts talking to him. And at first, Jesus' response to him, and, and then what he says to his disciples. This can, this can sound like a call to poverty in the Christian life. Or when you read the entire exchange between the rich young ruler and Jesus and then Jesus and his disciples, it actually sounds like Jesus can be promoting kind of a, a gospel of works, a, a behavior-based salvation where someone's actions can actually earn them a place in the kingdom of God. But thank God that is not what this is saying. This is not what Christianity teaches. This is not what Jesus talks about. Christianity does not show that we can work our way into God's good graces. But it can kind of sound like that when you read this. Rich dude rolls up on Jesus, wants to know how to inherit eternal life. 
And it sounds like Jesus just gives them a bunch of rules to follow. And then we hear that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, does God call each and every Christian, as he, as he told this rich young ruler, does God call each and every Christian to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor? No, he doesn't. First of all, if we did that, we could collectively only do that one time, and that kind of kills the idea of habitually giving sacrificially and joyfully to the kingdom of God. Sounds like it would be just a one-time thing rather than an ongoing rhythm of life that God calls his people to. So, does Jesus mean that a person must sell everything that they own in order to enter the kingdom of God? No, he doesn't. But what Jesus does seem to say is that in order to follow him, any of us should be willing to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor in the course of following Jesus. And so Christ is not saying to this man or to his disciples or to us, a vow of poverty is not what is called for. A vow of willingness is what is called for. But the really good news about this passage is that the rich young ruler, this guy was asking a very stupid question. Let me explain. Now, I've, I've preached on this before, and I've taught on this before, and the following illustration works a lot better when my own parents are not in the room. But the man walks up, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At some point, my parents are going to die. And I'm an only child. And so unless they have written me out of their will, and the chances are slim but not zero that they have written me out of their will, unless, they're written me out, unless they have written me out of their will, when they die, I'm going to inherit something. What did I do? What did I have to do in order to inherit? Nothing. I was born. What do I have to do? What actions do I have to perform? What behaviors do I have to enter into in order to have parents who loved me and wanted to provide for me? Nothing. Nothing at all. I was born. And so the question, what must I do in order to inherit, is, is a silly question. It's nonsense. What must I do in order to get the free gift of someone else that was their free choice and not at all dependent on anything I did. Do you understand? It's a paradoxical question. It can't be answered. And so what must this man do to inherit eternal life? He needs to have been born again. And because Jesus recognizes the fact that this question makes no sense, he basically throws the, the law at him. He recites most of the Ten Commandments to this man. And interestingly, if you go through it and you read it, he's basically... He starts with the set, what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments. If you think of the Ten Commandments, about, uh, four out of the ten are about our relationship to God. Six out of the ten are about our relationship to one another. And so he doesn't say, he doesn't start with the first one. I am the Lord, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't say, you shall not make for yourself an idol. He doesn't say, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He starts with the horizontal laws about how we deal with each other. But at no point when Jesus is telling this man that he knows how we're supposed to live. At no point does Jesus say, here's the answer. What he just says is, you know the law. But while Jews thought that keeping the law would bring them God's favor, only a fool would claim that he had kept the whole of the law since he was young. 
Jesus himself, in his Sermon on the Mount, showed that the law was about so much more than our outward actions, that it was much more about what's in our hearts. So for this rich man to say that he had been keeping the law since he was young just meant that at its basic fundamental level, he didn't understand the law, that he was only looking at his eternal, external actions. He was not looking at his heart. And so Jesus challenges him. After he has brought him to the end of the Ten Commandments and the guy says, yeah, I've done all that, Jesus challenges him. He says, follow me. He still hasn't given him the answer to the question that he asked. He still hasn't told him what, it, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. But he challenges him. Follow me. Live like I live. Join in my completely crazy way of life. Abandon your dependence on earthly things and come follow me. And the guy couldn't do it. And then Jesus says the line that has become famous to non-Christians as well as Christians. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I remember at various points in my life hearing various preachers or teachers do all kinds of linguistic gymnastics and absolutely tie themselves up in knots to try to explain this sentence. You may have heard, I, I, I know I did, well, there was this gate in the wall of Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. And it was a very small gate, but a camel could still walk through it if it didn't have anything on its back. And so the camel laden down with earthly possessions would come up to the gate and it would have to kneel, it would have to bow. It would have to get into a position of submission and take some of the things off its back and then it could go through. It's a great story. It's just not true. There's no evidence for it. This has been around since about the 15th century, if not earlier. And there's just no, no evidence that this is at all true. And then there's another one. Um, this was actually proposed by a guy named Cyrenius of Alexander, or Cyril of Alexander, uh, in like the year 400. So this has been around forever. And he says, well, uh, it, the Bible shouldn't actually say a camel through the eye of a needle. It should say a rope. Uh, this was probably a spelling error, because in Aramaic, the word for rope and the word for camel are just one letter off from each other. And so that's probably what, what Jesus really said, is, is a rope. So he's not saying that it's like absurdly, nonsensically impossible, just that it's more difficult. You know, you could get a rope through the eye of a needle if you kind of peeled a bit away from it. So, but again, there, there's no evidence that this is true. I mean, the idea, and in fact they found, um, the idea of a camel through the eye of a needle is actually something that was a bit of a, a common expression in that time and in that place. They've even found it in other languages and other kingdoms. Elephant through the eye of a needle, camel through the eye of a needle, horse through the eye of a needle. And so I think that we need to just take a clear plain text reading of what Jesus is saying because what he's saying is he, is he is trying to express an absolutely absurd impossibility. So Jesus must be saying that it is absurdly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? And why is that such a big deal? And why do his disciples all of a sudden get astonished and say, what are you talking about? Because at that time and in that place, and you can see this throughout the entire Bible, it was assumed that the rich would have the easiest time entering into God's favor. All the way back in Genesis, we see Abraham, the man chosen by God to, to be the father of his covenant people. Abraham was rich. And so it was seen that he was blessed and highly favored. His sons, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, rich. We saw Job in our Old Testament passage. Job was rich, and so it was assumed that he has God's favor. And when, and when all of a sudden all of his crops died out and his children died and, and he lost his home and he lost everything, he lost all his money, that was what was seen as the sign that he had lost God's favor. 
So to be rich in this, in this ancient Near East context was to be seen as, as being at the front of the line, as having God's favor. This should be an easy person for God to welcome into his kingdom. But Jesus was saying, in effect, listen to me, even the people who you think have the inside track into this kingdom of God, even for them, it is absurdly impossible. And so there's then kind of an unspoken, how much harder than for you, you disciples who have given up everything and have followed me in this itinerant ministry? How much harder for you, the unwashed masses, would it be to enter the kingdom of God? And so that's why the disciples are incredulous. They're, they're crying out in confusion and astonishment. In verse 26, they say, so then who can be saved? Like, if it's hard for rich people to get in, what hope do the rest of us possibly have? But, 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 this is where Jesus really gets in to what he's trying to say about entrance into the kingdom of God. He says that with man, it is impossible. So like, even for a rich guy, even for someone who's clearly blessed and highly favored by God, impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So what are we to take from a passage like this? Two things. The superficial reading is, yes, great material wealth, and we can see this with our eyes in this day and age. Great material wealth genuinely does seem to make it tougher to live a life where we have a posture of daily repentance and humility toward our creator God. Material wealth does seem to make it tougher to live in a posture of daily dying to self, picking up our cross, bending the knee to, to, Lord, to the Lord Jesus, relying on him and him only to illuminate our path. My pastor in, in Raleigh used to, used to say when he would preach about stuff like this, and this was a, a, a well-to-do church, but he would say, um, let me give you an example of what rich means. Uh, if you drove here today in a car, you are certainly in the top 10%, if not the top 5% of wealthy people in the entire world to give you a clue of what Jesus might have in mind here when he says rich. But that's the superficial reading. The deeper point here that Jesus is making, both to the rich young ruler and then to the disciples and then to the crowd, no matter how great you think you are, the sin in your life is so much greater than you think it is. And so that's why Jesus basically tells the law to this rich young ruler. He says, you know what the law is. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I'm, I'm crushing that. I got that. Because he doesn't understand. No matter how great you think you are, no matter how much you think you are following God's path, the sin in your life is so much greater than you think it is. But as Jesus himself said, what is impossible with man is, po is, is possible with God. God's power to save, God's plan of redemption, created by the Father and enacted by the Son and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that plan is so much greater than even the greatest amount of sin. So Jesus is saying, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Your sin is so much bigger than you think it is, but God is so much greater than you can possibly imagine. And then we have Peter piping up yet again. Kind of the, the wonderful collective voices of, of doofuses everywhere. And he's saying, uh, hey, we've already done that. You, you told that guy to, to give away all his stuff. We did that. How are we doing? We left everything and followed you. And then Jesus says something that is very easy to skip over. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard the rich young ruler story already. 
you know the camel through the eye of a needle. But sometimes we skip over this next verse. Verse 29 in Mark 10. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. We always think of it as like where we live in poverty now and we get riches in heaven later. But Jesus is saying, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and then in the age to come eternal life. And so this is another absurd paradoxical statement. Any of you who have left your houses or your possessions or your families to follow me will receive back now a new home and a new family and new possessions. When you follow Christ, you become a part of of a much greater family than you could ever imagine. You become a part of this church family. You get born again into a new family, a family of believers, this ever-growing family of Christ followers that stretches around the world and backwards through time. And there are homes open to you wherever you go and possessions for all to share among the church as many as, as have need. And so that's what Christ is offering us. If you are willing to, to abandon the, the physical things that you have around you, your, your house and your possessions and your land, what you will get back is going to be so much greater than you can imagine. But Jesus also threw a little, throws a little line in there as well, and this starts to become a recurrent phase in this part of Mark. As we've transitioned from Jesus being up in the north in Galilee, Jesus is now marching toward Jerusalem. So the second half of the book, there's a lot about the cost of following Christ. Jesus said, so he says, houses, brothers, lands, leave that all. You'll get back a hundredfold more now with persecutions. Jesus talks about this with his disciples frequently. Paul talks about this in, in his epistles to the new church frequently. This is the kind of thing that goes all the way back into the Old Testament, the actual cost of following God. In Isaiah chapter 6, God says to Isaiah, after commissioning him as a prophet with a message and a mission, God says, all right, I got a job for you to do. Your task is to go out into the world and bring this message to the people. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to tell you this up front, not only is nobody going to listen to you, but they are actively going to hate you for bringing this message to them and sometimes they will actively seek to do you harm and Isaiah says okay um, how long are we going to do this and God says you're going to preach this message until the cities lie in ruin and the land is a desolate waste and remember no one's ever going to listen to you at all now get out there and have fun and it's the same thing here in this Mark 10 passage in other places Jesus says that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will have troubles of its own, right? And how the rain falls equally on the just and the unjust. So Jesus is clear that life is hard for everyone, no matter who you are and no matter who you follow. But it's places like this where he specifically calls out his followers and says, if you follow me, not only will your life probably not get much better from an external material sense, but it's likely actively going to get worse you will be persecuted for my name. This is a given. This is the cost of following me. So please, do not be surprised 
when it seems like the more closely we try to follow God, the harder our life can actually get. Remember, every single one of the apostles, the 12 original followers of Christ, every single one of them, or at least we're pretty sure, ended up either persecuted, exiled, or martyred, or all three. The cost of following Jesus is not insignificant. It is not a triumphant parade up to your own personal coronation as part of the kingdom of God. And this is so well illustrated in what comes next in Mark. Here comes John and James. This is another area of the the gospel of Mark where I, I think Mark is sneaky hilarious. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. Now, you're going to get a whole new family and you're going to get lots of houses and you're going to and, and you're going to have possessions that are, that are shared, and you're going to have riches that you can't even imagine, but you're going to be persecuted. And then, in verse 32, he says again that the Son of Man, this, this guy who they were all following all around Israel, the Son of Man himself was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be condemned to death, delivered over into the hands of the oppressive Roman Empire, and that he would be tortured and killed and then rise from the dead three days later. And he was saying all this as he was inviting them to follow him on this march towards torture and death. So Jesus is not exactly painting the rosiest picture of being a Christ follower. And then about this is about the third time that Mark has started to use this kind of cycle of stories. Jesus will, will preach and teach about the, the upside-down radical nature of the kingdom of God. And then he will actually predict his own death to his disciples. And then one of the disciples will pipe up with some version of, so, who among us is the greatest? Jesus is basically giving almost like a a, a pre-battle speech. Like, we are marching to Jerusalem, and here's the terrible thing that's going to happen. And here's James and John going, hey, which one of us is prettier? Which one of us do you love more? And I just have to imagine Jesus just going, like, what what am I going to do with these guys? And so Jesus turns to them and he says, you have no idea what you are asking of me. They're asking to sit at his right and his left hand. Basically, they're saying, once he's on the throne, can we be your most trusted advisors? Can we be almost almost raising up to the level of prince? These are places of honor for crucial royalty. You know how in, in Hebrews or in Revelation, it talks about Jesus after his ascension, that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father on the throne and constantly makes intercession for his people. That's basically what James and John were asking for. They're not quite equal to Jesus, but really important and certainly much more important than the rest of the disciples. And Jesus gives them another version that he gives over and over to his disciples, and I'm so glad that he does. He says, you don't get it. You don't get to call your own shot, guys. You don't get to name your place in the pecking order or claim your seat at the head of the table. That's not how this works. Are you not listening? That's not how any of this works. Remember? Remember James and John? Remember Jay? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Does that ring any bells for you? And he ends this by saying, if you want to go where I'm going... You need to follow my lead because the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the gospel. The the Son of Man, the Messiah King, the one who, who, who Bartimaeus, even while blind, cried out, Jesus, Son of David, this promised, this promised ruler of God's people who will be on his throne forever is here now in our midst. 
And he is a good and a gracious king. It's like like the king Melchizedek in in Genesis. He's the the righteous king from, from the land of peace. But while being this powerful, righteous king, he is also a servant. He is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. And he did not come as all of his disciples still think he had. He did not come to cast off the shackles of Roman oppression and to lead Israel in some theological military campaign to reestablish its borders. He came to be a slave. He came to be a servant. He came to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and be mocked and spat upon and be flogged and killed. And after three days, he will rise. And after three days, he will rise. And when we follow him into this, when he says, you do not, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will have the baptism that I, that I have. When we are joined with him in that, after three days, we will rise with him. That's what Jesus is hinting at. This cup that I drink, you will drink. The water that I am baptized in, you will be baptized in. Is this a gloomy prediction of persecution? that we are likely to suffer similarly the way that Jesus suffered? Or is this a glorious promise of resurrection? Yes, it's both. When we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death and resurrection. When we follow Christ, we follow him into persecution, we follow him into the tomb, we follow him into his glorious resurrection. We have died together, we will rise together, we will live together. That's life in the kingdom of God. We heard it in our psalm today. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What did I do to gain this inheritance? Nothing. I was born again. No one can get into the kingdom of God on their own. Even the most blessed among us, to those who it looks like God is really highly favoring, they cannot get in on their own. It would be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for anyone on this earth to get into the kingdom of God on their own. But thanks be to God, we are not on our own. Because Christ came to die as a ransom for many so that we can actually pass through that needle's eye and into the kingdom of God. Let me pray. God, as we examine our lives, as we examine our, our, our lives during Lent, as we kind of sit with this, this, this posture of, of confession, repentance, um, of daily turning to you, would you remind us that, that however much we think, however great we think our sin is, it is so much worse than we think it is. But that however much evil is in the world, in, in, our, in our cities, in our hearts, that you are so much greater, that you are mighty to save, and that you can make the absolutely, utterly impossible possible through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.